Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties Too. This episode features one of the three guests who were part of my weekly hour-long NPR show broadcast over the air every Sunday on WLIW-FM 88.3, the only NPR station on Long Island, where it is broadcast continuously for 14 years. I'm Tracy Hotchner. I wrote the Dog Bible, Everything Your Dog Wants You to Know, as well as the Cat Bible, Everything Your Cat Expects You to Know. I'm also the founder and director of the New York Dog Film Festival. The 8th annual New York City premiere will be October 2023, along with the 5th annual New York Cat Film Festival before traveling the country, supporting local animal welfare groups. This show is about dogs, cats, and other creatures who share the planet with us. Please check out my other Pet Talk podcasts at TracyHotchnerPets.com. I would not be able to bring you this show without the generous support of Dr. Elsie's, the privately owned litter and cat food company founded by Dr. Bruce Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian. He personally created many styles of litter to make sure that even the fussiest cats would not have out-of-litter box problems, the number one reason people abandon their kitties. Dr. Elsie also created his own brand of cat food called Clean Protein, the first dry cat food I can recommend because it's based on the protein found in a cat's natural prey. This show would not be possible without the longtime support from Waruva, the pet food company founded and privately run by David Foreman, who named it after his rescued kitties, Webster, Rudy, and Vanessa. Waruva is a quirky name for a company with whimsical names for the dozens of different cans and pouches of cat food they make. But what sets them apart is how serious David is about high-quality nutrition. They were the first pet food company to use human edible ingredients and process them in the same facilities that make human food. Other pet food companies may have copied them over time, but Waruva remains privately owned and run, accountable only to their own high standards, not investors who focus on profits. I'm very grateful that my wonderful, brilliant, animal-loving friend Wayne Paselli wrote such a great piece recently. I'm going to call it an article. I guess they're called blogs now about horse racing in the United States, the travesty, the tragedy of what is being done to these young horses. And with Belmont coming up in just a few days, the second leg of the fabulous Triple Crown, uh, following the seven horses who died either spontaneously or put to death at the Kentucky Derby, it seemed perfect timing to ask Wayne to come on the show and have us talk about how and why is horse racing still happening in this country and why is the welfare of the horses worse than I think any nation on earth. But there might be somebody worse at the moment. I think we're unfortunately number one. Wayne, thank you for having written so eloquently about what we've done to horses for a long time in the name of gambling. And before we talk about the physical harm to the horses, to be ridden so young, broken so young, raced so young, you with Animal Wellness Action that you founded, and that's about changing laws, because in the end of the day, that's the only way to really do well by animals. What is the lobby that keeps alive horse racing? Is it gambling or is it the breeding industry? Well, Tracy, thanks for having me on about this important subject. And, you know, we're in the midst of this triple crown season. This is really when the public begins to think more about racing the Kentucky Derby than the Preakness and then the Belmont. 
so that sequence focuses more attention on on this subject than usual and frankly horse racing attention has waned through the years and with this expansion of gambling online you know right. so many so many apps have emerged for gambling and now you can gamble on college sports and professional sports and you know everything under the sun the handle for horse racing has been down and it's been sliding for a long time one reason it stays afloat is that expanded in the United States beyond Las Vegas and Atlantic City, which were the two hubs of casino-style gambling. A lot of local communities didn't want more gambling because of the social costs associated with the activity. So they went to the paramutual racing facilities, the horse racing and dog racing facilities, and basically said, hey, let us set up casino-style operations that are juxtaposed to your racing venues, and then you know, you can make money, you can have your huge casinos, and that'll be a good thing for you. But we're worried that you're going to dump us over time. So we want to guarantee under state law for X number of race dates. And if you are succeeding with your racing, then you're going to give us money to run these, uh, run the horse racing and dog racing operations. So that's why a lot of racing venues have survived, even though there's waning interest is because they're being subsidized by other forms of gambling, Tracy. That, that's a really interesting explanation because it didn't make sense on the face of it. The breeding industry is a tiny pool of people, just a few hyper-wealthy people or 42 people that had no money and they all put a bunch of money in a pot and they bought a horse and then they found a trainer and by some miracle or other, the horse winds up in a high-profile kind of race and everyone is supposed to think it's a oh, the little guy is going to win against Goliath kind of story, which it really isn't at all. But that's sort of the spin on it. But to understand... Well, it is actually larger, but Tracy, I'm sorry to interrupt. No, no, please. But, you know, it's, it's a little bit larger than people may realize. You know, there have been some economic studies done that show that the number of horses born, uh, you know, is substantial into the racing industry. And then you've got the feeding of the horses, you have the farriers, you have the trainers, you've got the racing and the gambling. So it's actually quite a large industry. And there are 38 racing jurisdictions, basically 38 states that have regulated horse racing. And it's not insubstantial. And I think that this industry has a long tradition in the U.S. You know, as an animal advocate, that it takes a long time to unwind even surprisingly marginal and very demonstrably cruel practice. Like, you know, we had elephants in the circus and, right. and, and that took decades to deal with. And greyhound racing is much smaller than horse racing, but that's still alive, even though that's really been on the wane. Horse slaughter for human consumption, that's been going on forever. It's on the wane, but nothing is easily undone when it comes to welfare because of the power of tradition the argument about jobs, and I think that's at work with personally. I don't think that this is a vulnerable industry in terms of the activity being outlawed, and that's why we have worked at Animal Wellness Action to try to institute reforms. And the seven deaths that preceded the Kentucky Derby, which is the marquee race in North American uh, horse racing competition, you know, with that number of animals is dying on that stage with all that spotlight when that's the last thing that people in the horse racing industry want to show the world, you know, that that speaks to some significant problem. But we did succeed with some 
forward-looking people in the industry in getting a law passed in the Congress. It was passed at the very end of 2020, and then we had to amend it in December of 2022 to create a new horse safety uh, body that would, for the first time ever, have the power to institute horse safety rules at the tracks. And the first thing that 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 new horse racing integrity and safety authority has done is ban race day doping, but it wasn't in place for the the Kentucky Derby, and it's not going to be in place for the, the running of the Preakness on May 20th. It is going to be in place for the Belmont on June 10th. And this, I hope, is transformative, but that's not where it ends. To end race day doping is very important, but we need to ban the use of the crop or the whip we need to have a zero-tolerance standard for healthy young horses dying on the track. Now, that may be aspirational, but that's the mentality that the racing industry should adopt because they should never tolerate a 3-year-old or 4-year-old horse dying. That's like a 16-year-old dying on the football field or on the baseball field or in basketball. It shouldn't be acceptable to have very fit young animals dying in competition that's frankly a non-contact and a non-violent sport yeah and it doesn't make a lot of sense there's no logic to it two of the horses that dropped dead after their warm-ups for the kentucky derby or it may have been three were from one man's barn and they were quote-unquote inexplicable and the necropsies that are done on horses i don't know if they're mandated that they be done and they say oh it could take weeks or months so, gee, it's a big question mark, but you know that there has to be some sort of substance abuse involved because horses don't just drop dead. As the people listening know, I spent a long time competing on horses, many of whom were discards from the racing industry. They either raced and didn't do well, and then they got a nice second life to be either dressage horses, not so much dressage horses, those weren't racing horses because that's a different breed of horse. But the thoroughbreds wound up being hunters and jumpers, which is what I did. And they had a pretty nice life by comparison. And the regulation in the hunter-jumper world, which talk about, you know, a rarefied little, little ivory tower place, is not very good. But when your horse wins a lot, which my horse was doing, they do make them pee after they win. And I see that that's what they're doing with the racehorses because the urine will show if they're doped. But I guess, you know, we have to even push the, conf the conversation back a little bit further. Okay, so let's say we stop them from giving them drugs that cover up their pain or before there was the issue of Lasix and they had bleeding from the nostrils because of their lungs, couldn't handle the running, all these kind of cover-up drugs. It, it seems to be, it needs to be something more basic that we, we have to stop saying, aren't they beautiful when we see them come out of their stalls and have the jockeys up? And they are absolutely magnificent. But we talk about their beauty as if it's sort of a Miss America pageant, but they're about to be these, as you said, high-performance athletes. It's confusing to people watching. It's a six-second race or a 60-second race or a one-minute race. Whatever it is, it's awfully quick. And all the other hours of the horse's life are not being scrutinized and are not under a magnifying glass. And this may just be an archaic form of entertainment that we don't need to have. I mean, you said that, it, that greyhound racing is waning, but 
humane groups have actually banned it in many states. So it's gone. It's gone from Massachusetts. It's gone from places where it was flourishing, right? There's few states that even do oh, it huge. anymore. Yeah. No, it's only two. So a generation ago, it's not that long, 25, 30 years ago, there were 60 Greyhound racing tracks in the U.S. Now there are two. Exactly. Now there are two. Mm-hmm. It's incredible. And in Florida, which was the redoubt of the industry, it had 12 tracks, 12 tracks recently. And in 2018, 12 of the, at that time, in 2018, there were 18 tracks in the U.S. You can see the quick descent. Right. But the big moment was a ballot initiative that Animal Wellness Action did with Great USA and other partners. And it, it passed in Florida even though the tracks were situated in the 12 largest metropolitan areas and had been there for decades, you would have thought that if there was an argument to be made for Greyhound racing, those institutions Mm -hmm. would have been the ones to make it and clinch the argument with the public, but it was 69 to 31 on the ballot to end all Greyhound racing. And that was a real moment of shock for a lot of people who thought, okay, well, Racing doesn't involve intentional cruelty like dogfighting does or cockfighting right. or horse slaughter. This is competition where the animals are racing, which we think, well, thoroughbreds are built to run. That's right. Greyhounds are built to run. Why are they dying or why are there problems and why is there doping and why are there breakdowns on the track? So that is really an example that I think the horse racing industry really needs to think about because – even your own view, Tracy, I don't know if you've evolved on this issue, but I see a lot of animal advocates coming to me and saying, oh, I'm against racing. I didn't hear that years ago. That's right. And I think and I think that this is really a moment of awakening. And the horse racing industry cannot figure out a way to keep the, the horses alive <laughs> on the track as, as, well as, yeah. as, as well as moving them off to horse slaughter. Um, uh, operations like a lot of the minor league tracks have done in Oklahoma or West Virginia or New Mexico, documented movement of horses who are not performing well according to the views of the owners and the trainers, and they sell them off to the kill buyers and then ship them out to Canada or Mexico for slaughter. If those things don't end, then I just cannot see the public attitudes um you know, not continuing to move in the direction of the views that you're articulating on this, on this, on on our discussion today. More animal advocates are saying, "Why are we putting these horses at risk when we have so many other forms of entertainment we can pursue?" That's a really good point, and many other ways to gamble. If that's what your, if that's your poison, if you will, there's other ways yeah. to feed that desire. I think that the greyhound racing. And what animal advocate groups like Animal Wellness Action have done, and Gray 2K has done wonderful things, is really proof. If you look at a state like Florida, where you could have argued, I'm sure it was argued vociferously, thousands of jobs were lost by closing down tracks and closing down greyhound racing. It's okay. There were other jobs for the people. They found something else to do. There was other ways to repurpose the track. And if not... I don't know, tear it down and make a parking lot. It doesn't really matter. The, the, the fact is that when you see the top 80 dogs, let's say, racing, and they go from state to state, you're like, oh, they're so beautiful. They have a good life. Look, they must be well-fed and well-looked-after. Same thing with the horses. 
It's a pyramid. The horses at the top that you see in these telefied races, they break down and die. That's, oh, a big old tragedy. But it's foreseeable given the fact that the vast majority of horses that are bred and trained wind up being discarded down to those tracks you talked about where their life is misery, absolute misery and no oversight to what kind of doping goes on. And then they break down. And yes, they're sent off to be eaten by somebody on long truck rides because Humane Society of the United States and other groups say, okay, no more killing horses in America. Oh, boy. Now they have to go over the northern border and the southern border, which means many, many, many hours in trucks with no food and water. It's like just a chain of misery. I think what people need to see is you're looking at a very false view of an industry the Todd Pletchers and these other fancy trainers who've made millions and have spent a lot of it on lawyers to protect themselves against the various claims against them and still kept racing even when they're under a cloud, they're not what the regular part of horse racing looks like. They're real down and dirty horse traders. You know, you get to be called a horse trader. It's not a compliment. That's what happens. That's the underbelly, the underside. And the majority of racing, that's the life the horses have. So the dying, I think, on the fancy tracks with the fancy trainers, I remember Santa Anita a few years ago, there was, horse, there was a horse breaking down and being put to death day after day after day. Was it the track? Was it the air? Was it the water? Uh, uh, who knows? Was it the drugging? Probably. I think what, what, you, what you talk about all the time, Wayne, with Animal Wellness Action is to look more carefully at what we're doing and why we're doing it. And if we're causing harm in the process, how about not putting on a fancy hat and rushing out to watch a horse race with a lot of alcohol involved? Make a party. Make a different party. Put on your hat and have some alcohol and some delicious hors d'oeuvres somewhere else. Not in, well, you know, not in, in, yeah. in pre-slaughter horse racing. Well, there's certainly a, a lot of people who who historically have loved horse racing, right? And there is something, as you said, there's something beautiful about these animals and watching them run. I mean, it, it is awe inspiring. And that's why, you know, that's part of the explanation why you and I, Tracy, love animals is their physical majesty yeah. and their beauty and their strength. Of course, as animal advocates, though, we really focus on their capacity to suffer, that the awe and the fascination are an amazing part of it, but the underlying value system is that we don't want animals to suffer unnecessarily. And if the horse racing industry cannot take a turn to, you know, really protecting the athletes that are at the center of the enterprise that drive the entire thing, if they continue to subordinate their interests to profits and gambling and, you know, their own notion that, you know, the trainer gets interviewed in the winner's circle or the yes. owner and they're yes. very proud about yes. it. Well, the horse did the work, right? The yeah. horse did. Yeah. <laughs> the and, horse the jockey, the one who, and the jockey together. Yeah, the jockey, exactly. Yeah, right. So they're, they're really the athletes at the center of it. If they're not first, then there's a problem. Well and I said. Think the public is not, the, the public is not going to tolerate 42 deaths in a single year at one track in California, at Santa Anita. That's right. They're not going to tolerate seven deaths in a week at Churchill Downs. These are the marquee tracks in the U S so I think people think increasingly if that's the the way that the that the industry operates, then I just don't think I can support it. Now if they can drive those deaths down, you know, to levels approaching zero, then I think the public will say, Well, 
I think let's focus on other big problems with animals. And that's right. where the horse racing industry has a, cho- a choice to make. And there's some notion somehow that there is this inevitable number of breakdowns and competition always is risk. Nonsense. When Santa well Anita said. had that, yeah, when Santa Anita had all those deaths, the leadership of the track said, we, we can't continue. We have to do something. And they did subsequently drive down, a, down the death. Yep. And uh, there have been way too many people in the industry excusing this behavior for way too long. And this is, a, this is a wake-up moment for the industry. They need to act on animal wellness actions, uh, you know, idea that we put out there after the deaths of the horses at the Derby, uh, the Derby Week. We said, commit to a new norm. The new norm is deaths of young, healthy horses approaching zero. Not zero, but approaching zero. And then I think the animal welfare community is really going to say, listen, we're going to keep our eye on you. We're going to keep watching. But in the scheme of things, this is not the biggest problem in the world. But it is a problem right now, that's for sure. And that's why so many animal advocates are looking at the industry very skeptically at this point. Exactly. Thank you, Wayne. And it's why our attention does matter. And your comments that you can make to anyone who's in positions of decision-making matter. So watch the Belmont, if you will, but keep in mind what we've talked about today. Thank you, Wayne Paselli, and thank you to the Animal Wellness Action Group that does so much good work. Thanks for listening. There are a few more special companies that make this show possible. I hope you will try their products because they support my mission to entertain you with valuable information and advice. This show is supported by Wonderside, a company founded and run by a woman entrepreneur who wanted to find an effective natural way to keep fleas, ticks, and other pests away from her pets and home instead of putting toxic chemicals in or on them. Wonderside makes plant-powered products to keep parasites at bay without dousing your pets and property with ingredients that are harmful to them and the planet. The show is also underwritten by Evermore Pet Food, privately owned by two dedicated women who take human-edible, ethically-sourced ingredients and gently cook dog food that is then frozen in pouches and shipped right to your door. They founded and run their own company and have been doing that for 14 years and answer only to their own high standards without interference from venture capital investors. I'm also grateful to Earth Animal, also privately owned by Dr. Bob and Susan Goldstein, where they create holistic pet wellness products with an emphasis on their stewardship of the Pet Sustainability Coalition. Earth Animal makes a dazzling array of healing products for dogs and cats, as well as the innovative Dog Chew No Hide and the hybrid dog food Wisdom, which is sometimes all that my picky blue Weimarano Maisie will eat.